Hi, everybody. Welcome to Homegrown and Ode to Sugar Bowl Sam. My second guest on my new podcast is Carla Thomas, managing broker of Urban Bird, who covers the Chicago and North and Northwest suburbs. How are you today? I'm doing okay. Glad to be here on the show with you. Thank you. So for those who don't know and haven't read the Homegrown blog on Medium, Carla isn't just a managing broker that I found online somewhere. She was responsible for me getting the condominium that I live in now. She was there for me through all of the highs and lows. And I owe her a million apologies because I was definitely, definitely a difficult client. (laughs) So I should start this. I should start this podcast out by saying thank you so much. And I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, you know, I still tell a funny joke about how you had a crush on our inspector. And I, 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 I remember him. Like a way, not like a creepy way. But like, <laughs> I every time I see Tom, I think about you. Because he was like the penultimate inspector, you know, down to the pocket protector and everything. Uh-huh. And you, you just were fascinated with Tom. I thought he was so adorable. He reminded me of my grandfather. This is a great story to start with. He reminded me of my grandfather. I had never like really seen somebody do a full inspection of a home. And the way his he was talking to his mannerisms, he was like the white version of my grandfather. And I followed him everywhere, looking in closets and little spaces. I thought he was so cute. I was so when I ended up when I that ended up being the condo that I didn't get. Because it had, yeah, I all, know that was the one that had too many issues. It had eleven issues: the paint job, electricity issues, uh, something was wrong with the plumbing, the appliances. It was just a whole mess. But I was glad that was. I've written about that on Homegrown about why it's important to get an inspection. Because on the surface, I love this place. I thought it was great, and then the inspection comes around, and they start pulling out plugs and doors and you see things that you would never see as just somebody looking at a place yeah all right so that that's, that's an interesting way to talk because i was i forgot about him oh <laughs> is he still around every time i see tom i think about you <laughs> <laughs> you should i like that affiliation all right so but this is this is what i think of when i think of you because i was so set First of all, as a first-time homeowner, it's not like somebody who buys and flips houses and buys homes all the time. When you're a first-time homeowner, this is the first time that you realize, like, you're not getting this place. You're not renting this place for a year or two. This is forever. Forever, ever. Forever, ever. So you have to really like this place. So when I went in for shopping for a condo, I went in thinking, do I want to stay here forever? And I don't know if you know this, but I qualified for a grant and the grant took off several thousand dollars if I promised to stay in this place for at least five years. So I knew that whatever place I got, it had to be some place that I could at least tolerate for five years. Otherwise, I, I would have had to pay a sizable amount of money back. But what was interesting was I remember going to certain places and you were so much more optimistic than I was. Do you remember the sunflower seed house with the chicken bones? (laughs) That's a terrible house. And you tried to make, you tried to be like uplifting and optimistic and tell me all the things I could do to this home. For listeners who don't know, we walk into this house. First of all, I'm confused because there's a Christmas wreath on the door and 
Weren't we looking at these places in like June? No, it's like May or June. <laughs> it was way past the Christmas season. It was way, it was April or May. It was the spring sometime. Sometime. Christmas wreath on the door. We walk inside. It's like three, four lazy boys in the living room. I'm not hating on the lazy boys in the living room, but this was a thousand percent a bachelor pad. There's no way in the world that a woman had any kind of touch on this place. And then it was like these big mixing bowls of eating sunflower seeds. So they clearly had movie night. And you told me to look past that. You're like, Shmantia, you can clean the place up. The lazy boys won't be here. The sunflower seeds won't be here. It'll be great. We go in the next room. There's a hole punched in the wall. You're like, but you can paint. You can paint. You can plaster. You can paint. Look how big the space is. And then we get in the kitchen. It's chicken bones on the kitchen. And I'm like, Carl, I'm ready to get out of here. I don't want to see anything else. This place is a mess. But yeah, was- well, I mean, that really speaks to the fact that I, I got into real estate as an investor. Mm-hmm. And as an investor, you're looking to, like, see the potential in a place. Yeah, that's what you keep saying. See the potential. Get it at the right price. Now, I ain't trying to buy nobody's chicken bones <laughs> for a high price, right? True. But... Especially when there's a renter in there, which is what I believe was happening. Okay. Right? Because a seller would generally fix up their place so it looks best for when the, the buyers come in. Renters really don't care. They're not in the business of selling the seller's home. Right. So they just, they said, they were told they need to get out. They got out. They left their chicken bones. They left their <laughs> sun policies. They left their everything. So if that's the way it shows to most buyers, it's an opportunity for sometimes for us to get it at a cheaper price. Right. And if you could see the potential in it, we could like work right over that and you can get something at a lower price when it's really just some cosmetic things to fix up. But yeah, you weren't having the I was not having the chicken most. I was like, I'm out of here. Don't ever bring me to a place like this again. But it made for a funny story. I actually told that story. I was a host for a Chicago event called Do Not Submit. Now I was the host of the Rogers Park, and I told that story there. I told that story at Rogers Park in another location, and they thought that story was hilarious. So I kind of took my home buying stories with me, and it became it. It wasn't funny to me at the time, but it was hilarious later. But anyway, that's that's the story I always think of when I think of you, and I also think this is something that is. I, I mean, it's not a requirement. But as an African-American woman, I thought it was pretty dope to work with other people of color. And I know you said you're from Trinidad, correct? Yep, I am. Yep, I am. And I thought that was cool that because you were from Trinidad, I'm African-American. And then my attorney was also, she was, she's originally from a region of, she's, she's African. So it was cool to just be able to bring in other people because that's not usually what you see. That's not what you see on the commercials and the postcards. Everybody kind of looks like the same person. I didn't specifically go out looking for a particular group, but I like that I work with women and POCs. I thought that was cool. And it also let people know who might be interested in a career. Yeah, there are more than what you see on the poster boards. But you yeah. in particular were... I don't, I guess an oddity also because you were also in engineering. That's another person that I do not, I don't see people who look like you who are engineers on the posters and the promotions for higher education. So what made you go from uh, engineering industry to real estate? So I got into real estate 
I fell in love with the process of me finding my first condo. I was 23, potentially. I had, no, 22. I'd been out of college. I graduated college a little early, so I was out of, out of college by 20. Mm-hmm. And so two years later, I was buying my first condo. I was working as an engineer, um, and I fell in love with the process. The hunt became like this game, right? Because I didn't just want a condo. Because, again, back to the fact that I'm from the Caribbean, I'm from a, a third-world country, we like a deal. Okay. So it's not about just finding the condo. It's like finding the condo at a deal. And so I really just got, like swept up by that process and I so I bought my first condo at 22 and a year and a half later um I had rented it out <laughs> and because I could get more money than my mortgage because I was always looking for a deal okay and I was renting something that I found a deal real cheap and I was then looking for another place because I was like oh this whole renting thing this is this is something mm-hmm. and um and then I ended up buying a three-bedroom in Rogers Park in our Rogers Park Hyde Park close to um, the university there and renting that out because I went in looking for a new place for myself but then I found a deal again the deals, the deals get us. <laughs> um, a deal on a three-bedroom and I'm like well I don't need three bedrooms it's just me um, and then I rented that out. And so I just kind of got into this whole, like, oh, I could buy and rent and I could fix up. And I got, I fixed up my first place, like the next year after that. Um, and it was just this thing I did on the side for a while. And then I decided to get my real estate license. Cause I'm like, wait a minute, this, you know, I'm pay- like somebody, I'm doing all the homework to make sure this is a financially sound deal for me, but then I'm just calling somebody to do the transaction. I can do the transaction. So I got my real estate license mainly at the time to do my own stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the crash came in 2008, 2009, and thereabouts. Um, so there was no more investing. There was no more buying and renting and flipping and that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I started doing deals for friends. And then I realized, you know, going back to initially what got me into real estate in the first place, which was my own hunt, I really liked the hunt. I liked meeting people, figuring out their needs, figuring out who they are, figuring out what spoke to them from a real estate perspective and from a home perspective. And then matching them. And I felt like I had this uncanny idea where, like, I mean, I would meet with a client the first time. They would tell me what they want. And then when I saw the place, I would literally kind of know. I'm like, okay, we're going to go see this one. This is going to be the one. This Mm -hmm. is going to be the one they're going to fall in in love with. And then that kind of matching of person to home or community became something that, like, I just really was enthralled with. And so the more I did it for friends, the more I realized this is what I want to do. So eventually I quit my corporate gig. And, um, which, you know, it's a hard transition to Mm -hmm. go from like getting that sweet paycheck and that, like, you know, those golden shackles aren't fake, they're real and all the nice benefits. And and I worked for Avon for seven years and man, they had good benefits. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I told myself, I started my company while I was still working for a small corporation and your company being Urban Bird, your company being Urban Bird. Bird. Okay. Urban Bird Realty. Um, and as long as I, I could make as much in real estate as I was doing in the corporate world, I'd quit. So for two very nasty years there, meaning like exhaustingly nasty, (laughs) I worked, (laughs) I built my company up as well as, um, was working full time to make sure that I knew that I could cross over from the corporate world to this world and still kind of maintain, um, I had two kids by then, so (laughs) make sure I could still feed them. Mm -hmm. And then when I proved to myself that I could do that, I quit. And it's been the best, you know, no turning back. No. When did you best start? Thing ever. Ur- I have much better lifestyle. When did you start Urban Bird Realty? What year? 
2014. 2014. Okay, so it was six years after the crash. It's interesting because, again, as a first-time home buyer, I've said this on episode one. The reason I wanted to get a home wasn't. I'm not gonna say it wasn't a good reason. It's not. It's another one of those good stories that was bizarre at the time. My parents were homeowners. My grandfather was a homeowner. Uh, my childhood friend was a homeowner and I had no interest in having a home. I had, I had lived in three different states and moved 10 different times. I wasn't even sure where I wanted to go. At one point I went to live in New York. I went to Hawaii at one point and I wanted to work in Hawaii. I wasn't sure if I wanted to stay in Chicago because I had gone to school in Michigan and Missouri. So I was kind of bouncing all over the place. My grandfather from high school up until my 30s kept trying to give me his home. And he kept telling me the mortgage is paid off. All you have to do is pay the taxes. At the time, I could not wrap my mind around how great a deal it was to have a fully paid off home that looked like his and pay taxes. In my mind, taxes were a billion gazillion dollars and I wanted no parts of it. So in retrospect, I wish I would have taken that home. But a year after he passed away, then I ended up buying a home. And it it, it was a series of events where he passed away and I started dating a guy who played basketball overseas. But while he was playing basketball overseas, he bought an apartment and was renting it out. I thought that was such a smart investment because nobody's an 80 year old basketball player. You need something to fall back on. Yeah. For whatever reason, my parents saying buy a home, my grandfather saying I'll give you a home, my childhood friend saying get a home, didn't register, but this random guy I dated for two months, now light bulb goes off. So I ended up getting, that's when I started shopping around for a home, but it is so, no, it is so overwhelming as a first time buyer because you're learning a lot at once. You're learning a terminology. You're working with a loan officer for the first time. You're working with real estate agents. And when you work with a real estate agent trying to get an apartment, you just want a place that's good enough. You like it for, you can sign the lease. But it's more permanent when it's, I have to put my name on a mortgage, pass this credit check, and this is me. What is it like working with first-time buyers versus people like you who are constantly buying and investing or home who are more I guess more well versed in home ownership. Yeah, I mean I think one, any first time buyer today was at least in their teenagehood or older during the crash. Okay. And I think to be fair, that has kind of ruined it for many first time home buyers. Like if you lived through that and you saw family members you know, buy a house, get that quote unquote American dream Mm -hmm. and then realize that thing was worth 30% less than they paid for it. And when they had to move or when they lost their job and wanted to sell, they couldn't sell it for what they paid for. Um, I think that is honestly stuck in the mind of many people who had never experienced real estate before that, Mm -hmm. but then kind of saw their family members and friends go through that. And that has kind of created this sort of shire first time home buyer in, you know, in this new environment which is different from when I bought my first home, things were appreciating 5% a year. And so like, it felt like you're a dummy not to buy. It was like this given that, right. you know, it was easy and they were giving away money, 0% down shore, 2% down shore. And so um, I kind of entered this market in a different phase, but working with a first time home buyer, I think a lot of times you have to help them one, figure out what's the longevity of that time being there. Mm-hmm. Understanding that, 
given, you know, we know they're good real estate times, we know they're bad real estate times. Let's estimate like a 2% appreciation every year. And so it costs you 10% to sell, mm-hmm. you know, 8%, 10%, you know, somewhere in between that 8 and 10% realm. And so unless you plan on staying there for five years with this idea of like, okay, on a regular, on the average, we're going to appreciate 2% a year. You're not going to be able to sell this for five years and kind of be flush and not lose any money on it. Right. So just kind of on making sure that these, whoever's buying it is either in it for at least five years or in it and willing to rent if they have to move for their job reasons or whatever, and making sure they understand sort of that long-term finances. And then secondly, if you've always been looking at rentals, you it's easier to look past um, fixes that you have never had to do yourself. I want to point that that was one of the things that you brought up to me because you were talking about the floors in my condo because they weren't traditional wooden floors. And you kept telling me that uh, they, they were laminate floors. And I'm like, who cares? As a renter, I'm like, big deal, laminate floors. As a homeowner, when one tile, when one shifted, I went, that's what Carla was talking about. So it's interesting that you bring it up because even when you talked about features, when you were showing me these homes, you were telling me things from to make me look at it from the viewpoint of a owner. Right. The long-term perspective, right? Mm-hmm. We can, you can do things like laminate floors, which tend to be, they look nice, especially the new materials today, which are not the vinyl floors of your, you know, your parents before, mm-hmm. um, or so even the vinyl now, but there's the laminate wood that if they get scratched, then there's no refinishing them. So if you plan on being there for a long time, then at some point you're going to have to replace them. So is it better to put wood so that you could just refinish it and get it back to the, the original look rather than having to replace the whole thing. So mm-hmm. it's, it's really making that move from like short-term decisions of what looks nice on the surface and long-term again, what, what really messed us up with the, the property that you like, but we didn't end up buying because of the inspection mm-hmm. wasn't so much the little things like the appliances. You can buy new appliances, you know, very quickly. ABT will set that up in one day, <laughs> but that had a huge electrical problem. Mm-hmm. Right. And so like, if you don't, you know, nobody looks at the electrical box when they're renting. Yeah, who cares? Right. <laughs> I don't care about just looks like, yeah. what the bathroom looks like, how much room there is, but it's the electrical, it's the condo association, like financial health, mm-hmm. um, making sure that you don't just sign up because this condo is cute. And then you find out that they can't fix the outside of the condo mm-hmm. because they're not really running the condo association well. So those are the things I really try to help for home buyers look at beyond the surface level. Oh, this is pretty. This is a pretty kitchen or this is a big living room. To what are the long-term maintenance costs, and am I prepared for them? And I think that's interesting. The condo level and the association level. You bringing up the homeowners association is interesting to me because again, I was anti-home. I had no interest in property management, home ownership. I went from being anti-home, not wanting to be bothered, to becoming the condo association president, and now the condo association treasurer. Like I'm in it, in it, in it. And what was one of the first, and this was an interesting discussion I had last week with our condo board, because I'm adamant about those meetings, was talking about reserves. And I remember us going to a place that I thought was so nice, had all new appliances, really pretty place, nice neighborhood, and they had no reserves. And you told me there's no way the mortgage company is going to approve this, because if anything goes wrong in this building, it's going to be on the homeowners. And I don't know if necessarily 
agents have to do that. Like you get paid regardless. If the mortgage company approves it, you get paid. I don't know if you necessarily had to go that extra mile to tell me these things. Is that normal? Well, again, I can't tell you what, I'll tell you that you can get a real estate license at 18 just for being 18. It okay. takes like a two week course and, or you could read a book on your own and like, it is not rocket science. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also know many real estate agents who come to this as a second career where they have functioned in like more demanding spaces, spaces that are require process and actually think about long-term viability in a way that, you know, regular real estate may not require you to. Mm -hmm. I'm in it for the long haul. I want you to call me back, not only to do this interview, okay. <laughs> but like, when you're ready to sell, because you're like, oh, I want to be in this place forever, forever. Well, no, I see, you know, like, I, I, you, you may want to move. You don't know forever, forever, right? You got like, you might I, find that special someone. You might have kids. You might want to move on. Mm -hmm. I want you in 10 years to remember, oh, I'm going to call that Carla again. Right. Uh, clearly, um, I remember you. That's the person I want to use, right? And so I'm in it for the long haul. And if, if clients make short-term blind decisions that end up being financially not viable, mm -hmm. they're not, they're going to call, not going to call me back right. when it's time to sell. True. Right. Um, and like, it is the biggest investment that most people make in their lives. Um, you know, and again, I, I come back to investment, but why I chose this versus, um, you know, I started working as an engineer. I made good money and I was paying $250 in rent. So I was constantly like, what am I going to do with this money I'm making? Right. Like, <laughs> That's a nice I problem to have. Right. Like, but I was, I mean, I was 20, right. And right. I was paying $250 in rent and I was making $50,000. Right. <laughs> so I was like, sweet. <laughs> like, what are we doing? I mean, this is like 20 years ago. Right. Mm -hmm. But like back when $50,000 might've felt like something, but um, like it's, I look at this versus like real estate versus the stock market. If I have $15,000 to put in the stock market, I'm going to have $15,000 growing at a, you know, whatever clip, you know, up or down, but let's just say 4% a year or, you know, on average, mm -hmm. if I have $15,000 and I take it and I put it in a house, even if I'm living in that house and I buy, I put it down on a place where 200,000, now I have $200,000 for appreciating at a certain rate. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's how I always thought about it. And I have, that's how I think about it for my clients, making sure that their investment's going to check out, even though, yes, it's a home in the short run, mm -hmm. that it's going to check out in the long run, because that's what's going to, the equity you build on this home is what's going to enable you to buy another home later on, or en enable some other clients to retire. Um, so like for me, you know, making sure it's a sound investment in addition to a pretty home in a neighborhood you like and all that stuff is very important. Right. And I know we, we talked earlier before the call about how it's different after worldwide health outbreak, coronavirus comes in, the home buyer who dealt with the kind of concerns I had is not the home buyer now. What has it been like since December 2019 when we first started hearing that coronavirus was something overseas versus it being an outbreak in the United States and people being in social isolation and home and still trying to buy and move? Yeah, so this market has been unlike anything most of it. I've been in this, I've been a real estate agent for over 16 years now, part time at first, but then full time. Um, and uh, it's been unlike anything I've seen. And then I have, I have other agents that, you know, I work regularly with that, have, you know, been in the business for 30 years and they haven't seen anything like this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, nothing really took place until March. So we officially shut down. So then it was like, you know, I was kind of like, pack it up 
prepare for a hard year in 2020 because I can't even go outside for less to sell anything. <laughs> right. So. Um, like that's it. That's done. I had clients who had homes on the market that were um, empty, and there was a lot of people actually trying to move here from Florida and New York, where like the, the illnesses and the deaths hit sooner. Um, so I was telling people rent it out. Lots of people want to, to come if it's empty and you you're not there. Rent it out because we're not going to sell anything soon. And then um, so we were all kind of locked down from March till about June. And in June, when we kind of had a better sense that masks work, because in the beginning, masks were mandatory. We didn't know. We didn't, you know. So when it was kind of clear that masks work and hand sanitizing and uh, washing your hands, um, then there became this appetite for um, letting people in your homes again. Mm-hmm. And it just took off like crazy. Mm. Um but what we thought at the time was crazy. So lots of people tried buying. But again, there was still this reluctance of anybody to put their home on the market um, because you don't want a bunch of people and a bunch of hands running through your home. And we were barely understanding what COVID was. Mm-hmm. So whatever was on the market, where, you know, you had a very limited supply and you still had some active demand because by that time, people had spent four months in the homes with two kids and two adults like working in a two bedroom condo and they were going crazy. Right. Um, and, but they were, I think that what, what we thought was crazy then was also tempered by the, um, political environment, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody knew if our then president would remain our then president and what would happen to the economy. And remember COVID was not only wreaking havoc with our health, but it was wreaking havoc with our economy as everything was closed. So everybody was kind of like, do I buy now? Because like, you know, the whole economy could crash right. with, you know, all the stuff closed. Then fast forward to, you know, everything kind of hunkered down again by September, October. For me, again, it was slow, like nothing was going on. And then January of this year hit, I think the economic outcome looked differently as we had a new president um, elected. In December, we knew we had a vaccine. Right. So we thought that economy wise, yes, health wise, but economy wise um, and house House buying is related to economies, right? Like you're not going to make a major investment in a house if you think the economy is going to crash. So economy-wise, I feel like everybody was like, okay, we have a new president. This may be not crazy. Um, and then two, we have... Uh, <laughs> anybody uh, who reads my Medium blog, anybody who reads my Medium blog knows how I feel about 2016 <laughs> to 2020. So I listen, I was ready to get rid of them. But please continue... <laughs> Right. And so we and then we had um, a vaccine on the horizon, you know, mm-hmm. at the beginning of this year. And so I think people started to see the end of the tunnel. So now more people were willing to get their house on the market. But then also, I feel like we had a year and a half of people who were lo- trying to buy, but didn't buy. Mm-hmm. And so this new market has been just I mean, we thought last year was crazy. It's just been insane. Um, things selling for. I was five to 10% above asking price. Okay. Um, you know, having one showing window for a home and then like, that's it. Like you have enough offers coming in that you make a decision and what's happening in Chicago here is even as bad as what's happening across the country in some places in Colorado, in North Carolina, they're going up to like 15% above asking. So, um, it really is a tougher market to enter for a new, uh, like a first-time home buyer. Mm-hmm. First-time home buyers normally have smaller down payments because, again, you just right. It's, it's selling that second home and getting the equity from that loves you to put down bigger, you know, you know, short of rich parents or whatever else, right? And we know there's systemic issues around that. But um, like first-time home buyers put down smaller amounts, and in this market where every house is getting 10, 12 offers, 
there's somebody in that 10, 12 who are cash or definitely somebody who has 20% down. And then people are doing crazy things like, okay, if I don't have cash or 20% down, then I'm going to offer with my 5% down, but I'm going to say no inspection. Uh, I still don't think that's a wise idea. Uh, I can say firsthand it is not a wise idea. Right. So, um, you know, it's creating a little bit of desperation, but it's also creating an environment where first-time home buyers have to be especially smart. I just did a deal this past week where they were first-time home buyers. They were putting down 5%. They were aware of the fact that 5% kind of gets sneezed upon mm-hmm. in, in today's reality. Um, and so they worked with a mortgage broker who was able to get them all the way through underwriting, mm-hmm. so all the way to the end of the process, such that they were fully approved for the loan, not just pre-approved, but fully approved for the loan. Mm-hmm. So by the time we put in our offer, we could close in two weeks. Okay. And we can tell them that like, we are almost as good as cash. All we have to do is get that inspection because that loan is 100% approved. What we would normally call clear to close, they're just waiting for the appraisal to show up um, and information about the house. And they're good to go. And that client who had 5% down was able to win a bidding war where there were multiple people involved. Um, so it's really like if first-time homeowners are more likely to be the underdog in the sort of financial you know, package that's being offered, not only the price, because it's not about price. Everybody, the sellers are getting whatever price they want these days. Okay. So it's not just about the price. It's the whole financial package you you present to the seller. Um, you know, there are ways to get it done by working with uh, vendors who, or mortgage brokers who can get you fully approved for the loan, not just pre-approved so that by the time you make an offer, you are on solid footing and you can close in a short time. Okay. When you brought up the closing situation, that brought up another... I didn't, in the middle of talking to you, I realized how many roller coasters we went on for me to close on my condo. Do you remember the insane situation we went through with my closing where the the lady was arguing on the phone and, and she was arguing with the mortgage company on the phone about closing and saying, well, this is, listen, this is a game of chicken. He's supposed to do this, this and that. And it was a big challenge about me being able to close that I thought I wouldn't be able to close that day and my attorney would have to fly back. Do you remember that whole situation? I did. Um, yeah. I mean, and again, that, that actually tied in a good bit to the, the everything's connected, right? Like it tied into some of the stuff that happened with your condo board mm-hmm. because the type of loan you were using, they wanted to see more reserves. Mm-hmm. And so the way for the seller to sell it at that point is that they had to provide the extra reserves. And it wasn't a whole lot in the grand scheme of things, but right. that was more money out of the seller's. So that by the time we got to the closing table, the seller was at its wit's end, <laughs> right? Because he put an extra that, you know, that it's going towards not even the buyer, not even to close his deal. It was more about like fulfilling a need for the condo association to meet the mortgage brokers near. So I can't remember what the actual issue was that came up then, but I just think that the seller was at its their wit's end. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that is like, I always tell people that as a real estate agent, I am part real estate agent. I am part social worker. And then I'm part like peacemaker. Yeah. (laughs) Anybody knows me in my personal life. I am aggressive AF. Like I am like, (laughs) get the deal done. But if you see me in a real estate deal, I'm like, at first I'm trying to sweeten the pot a little bit, be nice. Now if you piss me off, I can get aggressive. But like when the buyer wants to get it at the cheapest price possible, the seller wants to get it as the highest price possible. We're already at odds. Mm -hmm. If we start getting like emotions involved, at least, I mean like the seller and the buyer are going to have emotions because they have money on the line. But as a real estate agent, I always feel like I need to keep my emotions as neutral as possible. I need to keep, like, I don't need to add any extra. They're already at odds, right? Mm -hmm. I don't need to add any extra fire or fuel to the fire. 
And so it's really in these situations trying to calm down everybody whose emotions are raging, um, rightfully so, because they actually have real skin in the game. And I see my role um, as a real estate agent as sort of like that mediator in those moments where, you know, we're exhausted too, yeah, if, if things have taken long, but we're, at least we don't have that emotion right. in the game. So we're, I, it's our job to kind of be like, okay, now. I think everybody handled it well. You were calm. My attorney was getting frustrated because she'd flown in. The other real estate agent for the seller was calm, but it was our closer who was screaming on the phone with the mortgage company. The 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 closer was the one who was being a crazy person. Yeah. But as a first-time home buyer. I thought, oh, this is a normal thing. And you leaned over and said, no, this isn't a normal thing to do. And close and I was like, oh, it's supposed to be a reality show. Cool. I'll watch. <laughs> but you, you don't. Too much, you watch too much HDTV. Right? I was just like, oh, this is a thing. This is what they do. The closer hollers at the mortgage company. So again, it was one of those, it was those kinds of situations that Turned out to be funny stories, highly stressful at the time. But once you get the place, then it's you just breathe a sigh of relief. Like I remember bringing in my first box and just breathing a sigh of relief that this is done. This is on me now. And I just fully embrace and enjoy the ownership process. So I'm, I'm glad I did what I did. Would I regret it if I had gotten my grandfather's home and been able to skip all these steps? It, sure, it would have been great financially, but I learned so much in the process that I feel like that was valuable in a way that interesting enough in the past year or so that I've been the condo association president and the treasurer, when three other owners wanted to sell their place, there are things that I could talk to them about reserves and what we needed to do with repairs and values of home. Those are things that I would have never known if I would have just taken someone else's home and been done with it. Do I still own my grandfather's house? Yes. But there are things that I learned in the process that turned out to be very valuable. I didn't know it at the time, but they're valuable now. My last question for you is something that's interesting from the other end of the table. Because I did not want a home and I just, even though I had homeowners around me, a lot, of, and I feel like people of color, especially, don't always have homeowners around them to relate to. In my case, it was just being hard headed and not being sure where I wanted to live. But a lot of people cannot, like, they can't imagine themselves owning anything. And I remember there being a particular blogger who talked about he didn't qualify for the stimulus packages last year because he made too much money in his salary. And I thought, well, that's a great problem to have. You make it so much money that you don't even qualify. And then he went off and started talking about how he had such a great apartment and he loved it. And I immediately paused and went, wait a minute, you've gotten to the point where you don't even qualify for a stimulus because you have such a handsome salary and you're still renting. And I made a comment about that, like, well, what, what made you decide to not own anything so you have some kind of foundation? And it was interesting to me that the people who balked at the idea and immediately defended renting and started talking about, well, I can't find a place I want, real estate agents won't find a place I like, I love my apartment, blah, blah, blah. And I ended up in the comment section telling them, you are making your landlord richer, but you're not really doing yourself a great deal in the long term for your own financial benefit, investments, and then just having a place to stay because your landlord could up and sell 
his place anytime he wants to. How would you, how do you feel is the most beneficial way to connect with people who just don't see the point or the need to own anything? Yeah, you know, one, I want to recognize the historic trauma of right. black and brown people in this country around home ownership, mm-hmm. right? Like redlining, all the um, black Wall you know, Street the predatory actually, lending, right? And like, so for all those who are sitting out there, like, I don't trust them white banks. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, right? Like, I you got to recognize that. Mm-hmm. That's and, fair. Like you. Give give oxygen to that because that shit is real. Mm-hmm. Sorry, might as well swear on this. Right? Well, you just did. We're all, <laughs> we'll go with it. Go yeah. ahead. <laughs> um, right. Um, at the same time, I think for me, as somebody who grew up in, uh, you know, in a situation, so growing up in Trinidad, they don't have a credit system, and the banks didn't really have a full fledged foreclosure system so it's like watching one of those old movies and you're in a small town and you can't pay your mortgage and you see the little lady go into the the bank and they make a you know like they negotiate she's gonna pay half and she's gonna pay part that's where i grew up so my mortgage was never paid my mama's mortgage was never paid on time oh okay but it was back in the day when they like negotiating shit they didn't like take the house from me otherwise i would have been like oh like not homeless but living with my grandma okay <laughs> so um so I lived that life of like never having the mortgage paid and the worry and having the lights cut and the phone cut and the, the whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. And luckily because they still don't have like full credit systems and the bank wouldn't like maybe today they do, but back then they didn't, didn't know what to do. <laughs> like if they took somebody, they'd rather work with the home, the homeowner. Mm-hmm. Um, we stayed in our house and refinanced and refinanced and got breaks and all sorts of different things. But I kind of live with that fear above my head and still became a real estate investor Mm -hmm. and bought my first home and then rented my first home. And I think one of the things you need to figure out is what is that worst case scenario that you fear? And if you have a response for that worst case scenario, if you know that, okay, if I lost this job, Mm -hmm. okay, I have a really good job now. I'm getting that really good pay. But like I saw how the market downturned and a ton of Americans, regardless of how high up they were, lost jobs. What if I lose this job and I can't pay the mortgage? And you understand that, okay, what is the rental market in this area? Is this an area because there's a school, a university nearby, because I'm close to transportation, because I'm close to the lake, because I'm close to something attractive that people want to rent. Mm -hmm. Okay, I am buying this two bedroom and after my monthly payments will be X. What is the rental market in that area right now? Worst case scenario, I can't pay my mortgage, right? Mm -hmm. What can I rent this for? Okay. And I think if we... Look, stare that worst case scenario in in the face, because yes, stuff in this country is harder for people of color. Right. Or, you know, and people who grew up in like poor circumstances who are just trying to scrape, scrape themselves up to the middle class. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, If you look at that worst case scenario and you can have a plan B, then you can walk into it a little more um, optimistic, optimistic. Mm -hmm. I bought my first place with my then partner and then we broke up and I was like, shit, I didn't, I didn't plan on paying this by myself. (laughs) Right. Like that wasn't my plan. (laughs) And technically I could afford it. But after that, I couldn't eat out. Right. Your plan B was a matter of, you were like, wait, I need two plan B's, the relationship plan B and the real estate plan B. Right. And so I, that's how I got into rentals. Mm -hmm. Like I paid it for like six months on my own. I'm like, this is too tight for me. I don't like this. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And then I went and I rented a cheaper apartment and I rented out my, my condo and I rented that condo for 15 years before I sold it. Mm. Right. Somebody kept the thing about rental, even as a plan B rental of single units aren't super lucrative in the moment. Right. Like normally you will get enough rent just to cover that mortgage. Sometimes it's $50 less and you got to chip in $50. Mm-hmm. Right. But you know, blink and it's 15 years later and somebody else done paid off half your mortgage. <laughs> That yeah, <laughs> right. Somebody else paid all the interest, all the taxes, all the everything on that, and in thirty years, it's going to be yours. Right. So why are you doing that favor for your landlord? That- Take the risk, and if something falls through, because I don't, I have four rentals right now. I don't make money from them in this kind of. You know, I might be making one fifty, even two hundred dollars a month, but then some breaks, and then there goes two months of right. <laughs> two years of of um making money because i just bought a new furnace right right so in the grand scheme of things i'm not making any money in this moment but i'm going to blink it in 30 years i'm going to have property (laughs) that is mortgage free and will either continue to make me money then or i can sell and then have a fund so i would i would say people like yes you're going to buy and make sure you have a backup plan. Make sure it's in a rentable neighborhood right. that if something happened to you, that you have that second plan. And that'll help you sleep at night. That'll help you move forward with the decision so that you're not sort of crippled by the what if. True. And then on top of that, if for whatever reason, one of your renters don't work out, you got four options for where you can stay now. Should you want to move yes. into one of those places? Now yeah. you got choices to make if you decide to go the landlord route. All right, we are coming to a close. I want you to tell people how to reach you, your website, and how to contact you. All right. So my name of my company is Herb and Burb Realty. It's coming from Urban and Suburban. I can be reached at www.herb, the number two, burb, B-U-R-B.com. And my email address is Carla.Thomas, and that's Carla with a K, K-A-R-L-A, dot Thomas, T-H-O-M-A-S, at Herb, U-R-B, the number two, B-U-R-B, herb to burb.com. Thank you so much. I really appreciate. Well, first of all, I don't appreciate you just for this interview. I appreciate you overall because you were my homeowners 101 course. 